we are very thankful for you all. I know many of you are from the California area or from surrounding states, but there are a handful of you that have come from quite some distances. Uh, there are some students that I have seen that will be in the class for Radius this coming August. Very encouraged to see that, and I know there are some that are contemplating being students next year. Uh, very, very thankful for each one of you. As Jason said, uh, thank you to Grace Community Church uh, hosting this event in our neighborhood, so to speak. We are rooted in California. Uh, Sovereign Grace and Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in Bakersfield and San Diego have kind of been roots for Radius, and to have it in a central location is a very nice kindness to this organization. And thank you to the sponsors. If you guys see the sponsors on the outside ring here, please take some time to meet with them. Uh, they are chosen intentionally. One of the things we like about the Radius Conference is we get to pick who shows up and who gets in the doors and who gets to talk to pastors and potential students. And so these are some of our dear friends that are like-minded, and we are very thankful to have them. And then I personally want to thank the pastors who are here. Uh, there are pastors that have raised up certain individuals, missionaries from their midst that have gone through our program and have gone out to the nations. We believe very firmly at Radius that the Great Commission begins and ends with the local church, raising up and sending to plant local churches. And so for the pastors that are here, I'm very much thankful. The theme of this Radius Conference is a clear gospel, a true gospel. Why gospel clarity? Uh, why honor shame? Why the primacy of penal substitutionary atonement are going to be front and center at this conference is because these are doctrines that are squishy in the world of missions today. Squishy is a very polite, kind way of maybe saying it. Um, a gospel too often that is obscure, that is unclear, and often unbiblical is being exported to the nations. And how we speak of the gospel here will directly translate to how it moves overseas. So each speaker has been tasked with a particular assignment. There's going to be some significant overlap in speaker topics. We don't think that's a bad thing. We like that a lot. And then there are certain topics that are going to be stand-alone sessions. So you'll probably see that and hear that as you are with us for the next two days. So I'm thankful for the speakers and their various backgrounds and as they come at their topics uh, touching towards the clarity of the gospel, but then also some other topics that we thought would be beneficial. So my topic today, if you are taking notes, is the gospel, clear, or gospel clarity for the sake of the nations. Gospel clarity for the sake of the nations. Why a clear gospel and how a clear gospel makes it to the ends of the earth. Some of you, as Jason said, know a little bit of my backstory. This will be very brief, but... Um, went out from San Diego, California with my wife and son in 2003, ended up in Papua New Guinea, lived among the Yembiembi people, had to learn their language, uh, and then in January of 2008, we started teaching from Genesis all the way through to the end of Matthew. And we had a kernel of a church, a, not even a baby church, but we had believers. And after discipling them and gathering them together for eight more years, we saw them come to be a strong local church that has its own elders, its own deacons, and now is sending out its own missionaries to other parts of our little corner of the jungle there. And so I go back and visit them on an annual basis. Uh, my wife and I just got back about a month and a half ago. 
we, they actually killed a crocodile two bends down the river from us. So anyways, it wasn't great uh, taking showers at night in the river, but we made it. So that's my background. So from that, we're going to be talking a little bit about how gospel clarity makes it to those types of locations. Some are going to be in rural locations, some are going to be in urban, but why the centrality of gospel clarity? The people of God for nearly 2,000 years have believed that salvation comes through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no other name given by which men can be saved. But if the person and work of Jesus is to be believed upon, certain conditions must be met. Salvation is a work of God and by God alone. But that message, specifically the clarity of it, rests on his men, on his people, on his servants as they take it to the ends of the earth. If you believe this to be true, this puts you in a minority in missions today. More missionaries are going out today than ever in the history of the church, but the message they proclaim is often truncated or warped by the theology they knowingly or unknowingly hold to. And so because of that, the clarity of the gospel is often not what we would hope it to be. And when I'm speaking about missions today, I'm talking about church planting among what we like to call at Radius unreached language groups. Unreached people groups tends to be fairly amorphous today. It's fairly broad. Unreached language groups is a lot more definable. So missions tends to be going in a different way. There tends to be truncations to the gospel. Three reasons for this if you're taking notes. Number one is an inadequate fear of syncretism. An inadequate fear of syncretism. Those of you that have never heard of syncretism, it's the mixing of the existing religion with the introduced religion. So you mix two religions together. You don't get what they originally believed in, and you don't get the introduced religion. You get a mixture of the two. Most Christians are unaware that the dominant world religion is not Christianity. It's not Islam. It's not Roman Catholicism. It's not Buddhism. The dominant world religion is syncretism. It's the mixing of two worldviews. That fear is not adequate in most sending churches. The second reason would be a warped pneumatology or doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is the belief that God equips people with tongues that they have not worked to acquire or that the Spirit of God will somehow take gaps in someone's knowledge, missing portions of doctrine and teaching that the missionary has failed to convey and the Spirit will supernaturally fill them in. We don't see that happening in our churches in San Diego or in Phoenix or St. Louis, but somehow it happens over there because the Holy Spirit works different over there. That's a warped pneumatology. That's a bad understanding of the Holy Spirit and how he works. But that's very common in churches today and in missions endeavors. And then the third one would be a thirst for numbers. A thirst for numbers. Many today will speak to the need for our God to be glorified among the nations, but they will see that glory not in terms of authentic converts and strong churches, but in numbers. Conversions are counted, churches and church plants are numbered, and progress is measured by these black and white metrics. Consequently, speed is a closely held value. Are we keeping up with birth rates, the speed of the spread of Islam or atheism, Are we keeping up with this race? Are we in the race? Friends, when you start to hear talk about the race or keeping up, that's when you know that speed is an animating value and we're dealing with numbers. And we don't see that as a dominant value in Scripture. So where do we go to find clarity on these things? I'm going to suggest to you that we go to Romans 10, verses 11 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10. 
11 to 17, and we are going to talk about one of the famous missionary passages, and I think the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, gives us some parameters for the gospel moving forward, and we can draw some things from this that will be helpful for us in this day and age. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite teachers, said this of this passage, these verses are the great charter for foreign missions. They apply, of course, to any missions enterprise, but they're in particular and have always been regarded as the great charter for foreign missionary work. They are the argument for the necessity and the urgency of taking the good news of salvation to all countries under the sun. So this is a famous missions passage, but it gives us kind of some parameters. So let's read this together, and then I'm going to pull out one overarching truth, one thing that we can kind of put a banner over this whole passage, and then five principles or five conditions that need to be met for gospel clarity. So let's read it. Romans 10, 11 to 17. I'm reading out of the ESV version. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of God. And so we see one overarching truth. If you're taking notes, there's one overarching truth. You can put a little rainbow. Don't put a rainbow. Put like a, an arch. Um, <laughs> One overarching truth in this, and that is that God alone saves. God alone saves sinners. It's important for us to recognize this truth. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who believes in him, will be saved. Jew, Gentile, Yembi Yembi, American, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, all who call on the Lord will be saved. Christians realize there is nothing within themselves, but rather something from outside of them, or more appropriately, someone that must act in order for us to be saved. What the Reformers would call an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean it's some weird green guy, but it's something outside of ourselves. Something outside of us, something alien to us, must save us if we are to be saved from our sins. This is a wonderful truth that's undergirded God's people throughout their journey on this earth. The God of heaven, before the foundations of the earth were laid, has chosen a people from every language, tribe, nation, and he will have them. Missionaries go out in the sure confidence that among those who speak the Tuwadi language, the Numu, the Hausa, the Savi, are sheep that belong to the king. He will call them too. And they will listen to his voice and be gathered into the people of God. This is the missionary promise. We go in the confidence that our God has people everywhere. And that's why we go out. J.R. Packer, in his excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, says this, Evangelism is man's work, but the giving of faith is God's. It is true, indeed, that every evangelist's aim is to convert, but the question whether or not one is evangelizing cannot be settled simply by asking whether one has had conversions. 
The results of preaching depend not on the wishes and intentions of men, but on the will of God Almighty. We trust in our God. We trust that He has sheep from every sheep pen in the world. And we go in the confidence that they have been saved. When we were presenting the gospel to the Yembe-Yembes, they had no good term for Savior. We had no uh, particular word that was helpful. They just didn't have a concept for that in their language. And so we had this term that we appropriated, and it was one called the bridge man. In Yembe-Yembe, there's rivers about as long, maybe longer or wider than this room, and they would take big old trees, and they would drop them across those rivers. And you would walk across that tree to get to the other side. Otherwise, you were facing days or hours to walk around these long rivers. But what happens when you drop a tree is that the base of it is fairly wide, and anybody can walk along the base. But as it gets further out and you get further to the end, the tree gets skinnier, and the branches start popping up. And people will walk, and it'll be pretty ginger, because if you fall into the river, most likely you're, you're not going to last very long. You're going to get rolled over the rocks, and that'll be the end. And so what they have for the weak, what they have for the elderly, what they have for those who lack the confidence to walk to the other side is an individual that they coined the phrase for, the bridge man, the one who puts people onto their back and carries them to the other side. And here's the rule. If you're getting on the back of the bridge man, don't try and help. Don't try and move. Don't whisper in his ear. Don't, don't give him any sort of advice. You're on his back. Your only job you hold still. And the bridge man takes you from one side to the other side. And in the Christian world, the bridge man takes us from Satan's side, and he takes us to God's side. The Yembe would eventually make songs about the bridge man, the Kinok Nimad, who carries us from Satan's side to God's side. This has always been the history of the people of God. We are saved from our sins by an alien righteousness. God saves sinners. This is the banner that we put over this passage. But then there are conditions, and Paul logically carries us to these questions. Okay, if God saves sinners, calling on the Lord, anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved, but how do they call on the Lord? Listen to how he phrases these three rhetorical questions. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We all know the answer to these questions. They can't. They're not able to call on a God they don't know, and they will never understand unless someone teaches them. Someone expounds and brings the gospel to them. The moon, the stars, the cycle of the seasons, in Yembe in particular, the way all scream out, there is a God. But unless someone goes and someone preaches, they go to hell. There's this horrible theology out there that if someone never hears the gospel, that God will provide a way. The thinking goes like this, that God is good and he would never send an innocent man to hell. But there are two fatal flaws in this thinking. The first is that there is such a thing as an innocent person. The scriptures are clear that the first Adam was marred and twisted and separated from God when he ate the fruit of the garden. And we, in turn, as his offspring, are separated from God by what the Yembiembis would call our Adamness. There's an Adamness that has stained us from our conception, no matter our skin color, language, birth country, sex, anything. Every child, every daughter, every son of Adam has this Adam part that has twisted us. And the second flaw 
is that there's no, if there is a way to get to heaven without hearing the gospel, the most monstrous thing in the world for churches and individuals in this room to do would be to send missionaries. If someone can be saved apart from the gospel going, if someone can be saved apart from missionaries preaching, why would we send missionaries? Because now they have a choice and they may reject the gospel. Better to leave them in their ignorance if there truly is a third way. But there is not. There is heaven and there is hell. There is redemption and there is damnation. That is what the scriptures teach. So how are they to hear? We answer these three questions. How can they call? How can they believe? And how can they hear? If they are going to a Christless eternity to hell, how do they hear? Well, hear the ordinary conditions. And hear that word ordinary. There are extraordinary, and we're going to get into that. God can do anything he wants at any time. But ordinarily... What are the circumstances or what are the conditions that need to be met for someone who has never heard of the God of heaven and earth, the creator God, to believe and be saved? And let me suggest five, five from this passage, if you're taking notes. Number one, some need to go. Some need to go. This is pretty obvious from the passage. Some need to leave their homes. Some need to leave their jobs. Some need to leave their dreams. Some need to leave behind their ambitions, and some need to go. Yes, God does the saving, but he, we see from this passage that God uses means, and God can do anything at any time he chooses. We see in Scripture that God can speak through angels. He speaks through burning bushes. He even speaks through donkeys, but ordinarily, he speaks through his servants. He speaks through his people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling to the, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God's chosen to make his appeal for the gospel through flawed human beings. That's why we go. We go because that's the instrument that our God has chosen to use. Martin Luther said this, it doesn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if someone has never heard of it. John Calvin said this, The gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident, but is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. We go. So how does someone know whether they are meant to go into foreign missions? This is the question that I probably get the most. Let me address this briefly. The big idea would be don't look for a call. Look to your Bibles. Don't look for a missionary call. Look to your Bible. The language of calling has become quite abused in our day. Young people are looking for a calling to marry someone, go to a particular school, take a job, take a left turn off the five freeway. Do I have a calling? But the Bible never speaks of calling in this manner. We have an upward calling, Philippians 3.14. We have been called to freedom, not bondage, Galatians 5.13. God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9. And he's called us to his own glory and excellence, 2 Peter 13. But nowhere in Scripture do we see a calling to a particular occupation. That's a flawed way of thinking. That's a modern novelty. Least of all, missions. This is a modern invention that has caused a lot of confusion. We do have our Bibles, though, praise God. And our Bibles, we see God's people being called into missions 
for many generations. Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your offspring, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Or Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you also a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Romans 15. I've made it my ambition to preach Christ where he was not named lest I build on someone else's foundation. Revelation 5, 9, the prophecy, every nation, tribe, people, language. We find our calling in Scripture. That's where we find our calling. Don't look for a burning sensation in your chest. Don't look to the clouds. Don't look for something mysterious. And don't encourage this in your churches. We find our calling in the Bible. Look to your Bible, and you'll find the same calling that Jim Elliott, Gladys Allward, Hudson Taylor, John Payton, all found to be their calling. Some need to go, and they find their calling in the words of Scripture. Number two, those who go must know their Bibles. The second parameter that we see in this set of verses that can be a rightful takeaway from this is those who go must know their Bibles. One of the things that gives me great encouragement in missions in this world is that the overwhelming majority of the missionaries that I have come in contact with, the sending agencies, the churches, love the Lord Jesus Christ, care about the glory of God and the advance of His church. And we've seen great things come about. But if good intentions were all that was necessary for the world to be evangelized, it would have happened thousands of years ago. Good intentions must be coupled with going, but also with the hard work of gaining the knowledge of what is true and what is biblical. Zeal alone will not suffice if the nations are to be reached. It has to be coupled with knowledge. Zealous young people are dangerous in missions. That zeal has to be coupled with knowledge. Church pastors helping them gain that knowledge, sending them to schools that will teach them. The Apostle Paul writing in Timothy said this, do your best to present yourself to God as an approved, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We see from the first chapter of Galatians that sincerity of heart and good motives are not enough. There is such a thing as a false gospel. And good people who love Jesus can teach things that end up hurting the gospel and the church. This is the day and age that we find ourselves in quite commonly. People with good intentions who love Jesus are the most admirable church members and teach the most horrific things when they get overseas. How do we help this? They've got to know their Bibles before they go overseas. So where does someone learn their Bible? Three primary places. In their family, in their church, and in a formal Bible training setting like a college, seminary, or a Bible school. Praise God for good parents that raise their children up under the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's difficult to count the number of missionaries who have gone to the mission field who were raised in good Christian homes with a steady diet of the Word. 
they would certainly be the majority. Those who make it to the field have parents, have grandparents that they emulate, that they follow, that they've been catechized by. The natural effect of a family that is in the Word, that knows their Bible, is a family that goes to church. There is no such thing as a family that knows their Bible well and is absent from the church. It's an overstatement, or it's no overstatement, to say that the primary instruction of the Bible comes from the church, the regular week-in, week-out teaching of the Word to the gathered saints. Missionaries who know the Word have always been faithful church members, first and foremost. We don't find missionaries that do well long-term that are lone rangers, independents. Well, I've got my own calling. Well, that's not a biblical calling. The biblical calling we find is that they're first and foremost missionaries. And then finally, there's a further level of training that is helpful for those who are going outside of their home country, outside of their mother tongue, to places and peoples that still are in utter darkness. The further training is often in Bible schools and in seminaries and can be a tremendous benefit to those going to the nations for longer periods of time. Now, here's the twist. This is fresh on my mind. Our graduation speaker was Paul Schleyline. He wrote a biography of John Payton. Um, I'm hoping there's copies of it over there. If you don't see a copy of it, get the autobiography that Jason was talking about first, but the biography, a little bit skinnier version. But Paul and I were talking There's this ironic truth that those who get further education in the Christian world tend to drop out of missions more frequently. This is an ironic truth that both of us have kind of looked at. There need to be guardrails in place. If our members of our churches, if our students coming through educational universities, the further they go, why do we see so few of them making it to the mission field? because most don't have those guardrails. And there's also these factors that someone who has been studied, who has grown, has debt. They have mortgages. They have housing payments. And then probably the biggest one of all is the more education they get, the more opportunities come their way. And the advocates for the nation don't roam the halls of higher education. The advocates for bigger churches, for teaching at seminaries, for going back to the university that they love, for settling into other opportunities are going to be right there. But the nations have few that will speak for them. This is why John Payton, Adniram Judson, William Chalmers Burns are such anomalies. Their high level of education and turning their back on such tremendous opportunities to go to the nations. Friends, if we're to choose between poorly trained Bible students going to the mission field in large numbers and well-trained Bible students going in smaller numbers, we must choose every time the smaller numbers. But we must also recognize the danger that many can be lost to the cause of Christ among the nations the longer that they stay home. So what's the solution? What are the guardrails that keep a person headed to the mission field without losing their zeal but knowing their Bible? It's churches, Bible schools, and seminaries that keep them on an intentional track from day one till the end of their training. Church leaders that check on their missionary candidates while they're still in university. Seminaries that create intentional pathways for students who come in with a heart to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and that they'll keep that same heart while they are being equipped to handle the word of truth. 
On that note, I'm encouraged greatly with Greenville Seminary and with our friends at IRBS. You're going to see some of these Southern California Seminary, but all of them come kind of following in the footsteps of Greenville that's created an intentional pathway. Oh, for parents, churches, and seminaries that press home the primacy of getting to the nations, but push for a deep knowledge of the word before their child, church member, or student leaves. Those who go know their Bibles. If men are to hear, understand, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to know what we're teaching. Number three, those who go need to be clear communicators. Missionaries are ambassadors, heralds of a message from a king. Ambassadors are not judged on the response of the people to the message they bring. This is counterintuitive to the way that we think things in the West. You're not judged by how many people believe. They're not judged on how many listen and obey. The one criteria that ambassadors, that heralds are judged on, you know what the, the one criteria, the only criteria that missionaries will ever be judged on, did they clearly convey the message they were entrusted with? Did they convey the message? Not how many listened, not how big the church got, not how many church plant, not how many, not how many baptisms. Did they clearly convey the message? This is the only thing that heralds, ambassadors, missionaries will be judged on someday. I'm not talking about flowery, high rhetoric, as Paul references in 1 Corinthians 2.4, where he's speaking about paid teachers of the day, but rather simple, competent, clear communicators of God's Word, as he mentions in Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Are we clear? Are our missionaries clear communicators? They go. They know their Bible. Are they clear? Missionaries to foreign lands are first and foremost communicators. In a pinch, a translator can be of service, but only as a poor, short-term crutch, not for primary, long-term preaching and teaching. To communicate clearly in the language of the people that are being taught is a must if the gospel is meant to be heard and understood. Regardless of how urgent someone's message is or how much they've studied the message, people will not take the message or the messenger seriously who cannot speak like an adult, who cannot communicate clearly in their language. Oh, but someone who has learned the language, who knows the illustrations from the home culture, who uses the grammar, the syntax, the discourse features, who speaks in metaphor, humor, persuasiveness, all in the native tongue, those communicators will not lack for an audience. To have missionaries who are communicators. They know their Bible. They've made it there, and now they know how to bring this message with full force in local context. So why in our day are these types of communicators, these types of missionaries, in such short supply? Because learning another language and culture is hard. That's flat out the bottom line. It's hard. There's no mystery surrounding it. There's no, well, if we could just do it. It's just hard. It's probably the hardest thing in the missionary task if we're talking about taking the gospel to unreached language groups. Who wants to sound small, foolish, for years on end? 
Very few have the humility to put themselves through this process. So shortcuts are sought to the peril of the message and the God of the messenger. Listen to how Paul, he's making an illustration for tongues and he's speaking about this particular way that languages are used. And he's talking about how you have to speak in an intelligible tongue or somebody has to interpret. And he pulls this out in 1 Corinthians 14, 7. He says this, If even lifeless instruments such as flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Friends, here's the deal. If you're a foreigner and your message is a foreign message, then your God is a foreign God. And our God will not be understood by the people groups that we are taking him to if our foreigners, if our outsiders, if our missionaries always sound like outsiders. They haven't built up the credibility. They haven't become insiders. During the two years that I was working to gain fluency in the Bisis language, that was the name of the language in Yembe Yembe, uh, to the Yembe's, it was always a rule in our context that men paddled canoes standing up. Women sat, they always sat in the front, men stood in the back. You know how hard it is for a 220-pound guy to paddle a canoe about this wide? about half the distance of this room, they would stand on the shore. There'd be a few hundred of them standing on the shore while I'm paddling in the river. And they would, the kids would start yelling first, wait for it, wait for it. And I'm starting to get tippy. And then into the wall, everybody's cheering and just do it again, do it again. Learning their language, misconjugating things. We had genders and oh, I'd be like, she's a great hunter. And I'm talking about one of my tribal fathers. And it's just, mistakes and mistakes and just going over and over and come over here please come use some of your language near us we need to laugh today it's just (laughs) but through this process through two years of beating your head against the wall learning memorizing pressing in gathering more vocabulary not so that you could be an esteemed individual but so that when the gospel came the gospel would have credibility. And for those about a thousand Yembe Yembe's in that village that watched us go through that process, myself and my teammates, the credibility that was earned for the message to come. This must be important if they're taking the time to get this good in the language. This must be worth hearing. I've seen this process repeated over and over as those who submit themselves to the learning process to becoming fluent gospel communicators if they're willing to put the work in, if they're willing to submit themselves, to humble themselves, to be clear gospel communicators. And as we stand on the precipice, next year will be the 500-year anniversary of the Bible being translated into English for the first time. The beginning of the process is nearly 500 years ago, 499 to be exact. We remember two of the chief translators. If we're speaking about language fluency, it's not just in communication, it's in our translation process. The two chief translators that sparked the Protestant Reformation in German and in English, Martin Luther and William Tyndale, they were masters in the first language that they were translating into, the common tongue. They were able to translate the word in a meaningful and vibrant way because they knew the mother tongue so well. 
One of the rules in translation that few people recognize is that your best Bible translators are not your best exegetes. They're your best speakers of the language. You want to raise up translators? Get the primacy of being a good, clear communicator into their DNA. The Word of God is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, but only if it's understood. God will not supernaturally make bad communicators good any more overseas than He does in English-speaking pulpits. No clear communication in another language has to be fought for, worked for. Only missionaries become insiders as they fight that and they become clear in the way that they communicate. Those who go need to be clear communicators. Number four, two more and we're done. Those who go must preach. Those who go must preach. The clearest injunction we can draw from this passage is that the gospel must be preached. The ordinary means that God has chosen for people to be saved is that someone who knows their Bible, who can clearly communicate, preaches or heralds the gospel to them. So they know their Bible. They've made it over there. They know how to clearly communicate. Now what do they do? They preach, and they preach the gospel. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, we must always say that God is not tied to means. He can do things directly, but His usual manner is preaching. God has the power to work a miracle when He chooses, but a miracle is an exception. The normal is for God to use the means that He Himself has brought into existence. God has chosen that men and women should be brought to salvation by this method of preaching the gospel. It's through the preached Word of God that men and women are saved. Humanitarian projects, social justice, the alleviation of human misery in all of its brutal forms are admirable things, but it cannot and should not be the primary task or even the only task of Christians. Uppermost in priority is the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and we put our faith in that patient, ordinary means of grace. 1 Corinthians 121 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach and we preach Christ crucified. And this ties in exactly with what Paul is saying here as he draws this quote out from Isaiah 52.7. And it's worth reading this quote from Isaiah in full. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach the good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your king reigns. This passage has a double meaning. Many who heard it in that day would take it for its initial meaning, and that's rooted in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11, that the news that the remnant are returning from captivity in Babylon. What a wonderful thing. They're coming home. They've been freed. The exiles are returning. But Paul shows us in this passage that it's truly fulfilled in the gospel going to the nations. The feet of those who preach the good news, the men have been released from their sins, Jews and Gentiles equally free. The return from true exile is a reality in the work of Jesus Christ, but this exile is only alleviated as the good news is heard, and the good news is only heard as those who go preach clearly and faithfully. Those who go must preach. And then finally, those who go need to be sent. Those who go 
need to be sent. Number five of the parameters that we're talking about. They got to go. They got to know their Bible. They got to be clear communicators. They got to preach. Then we all go all the way back to the beginning. They got to be sent. There's this two-part equation in missions that we see and we draw from this. John Piper will say, if you believe this book to be true, if you think this book is true, and he's drawing this from this passage, he'll say, you have three options when it comes to the Great Commission. Number one, you're a goer. These are the ones that we've been talking about primarily. Number two, you're a sender. We're going to talk about that right now. And number three, you're a disobeyer. There's no fourth option. I love Piper's bluntness. You're a goer, you're a sender, or you're a disobeyer. You're involved in the heartbeat of the king, or you're not. But you have two options when it comes to that. And most of the time at missions conferences, we spend a lot of time on the goers. That's a good thing. But there's a, a whole other group, which I'm looking around this room. There's, there's a good portion of you, well over half, that will be senders. Will you be good senders or will you be poor senders? The scriptures hold up three groups as those who send or are in the sending process. I would say churches alone send. But there are three groups that kind of are involved in helping in the sending process. Number one would be individuals. We see this in the book of 3 John. 3 John is kind of a manual for how to be good senders. Really helpful as Paul speaks of his dear friend Gaius who helps missionaries as they make it to the field, supporting them, encouraging them as they were traveling through and likely staying long periods of time with him. Uh, the father of modern missions, he's known as William Carey. Some of you have heard this illustration, but William Carey, as he was preparing to go to India, and he would never return. He would go and he would stay for many years, and there's, um, I'm looking forward to in a few months going over there and seeing some of where he walked in Serampore and some of the institutions that he started that are still there to this day. But William Carey and his friends sat around and they talked about when he was getting ready to go, that he was kind of like going down a dark well. And he would be holding on to this rope as he goes out of view. He goes deeper and deeper into the well. But his friends, specifically Andrew Fuller and the other brothers that were with him, said, we'll hold on to the rope. The goers who go down the well. And then the senders who hold the rope at the top of the well. And here's the illustration, friends. There will be goers and there will be senders. And someday the king will return. Someday the king is coming back. And when the king returns, he's going to ask all of those who went down the well to show him their hands. Show me the scars you have. What did it cost you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? But I think the king will also take everyone who was at the top of the rope, the senders, and ask them, show me your hands. Will you have any scars? Will our senders have any scars? Is it only those who go down the well that are called to have scars. Those at the top, the senders, I pray that you have scars. Churches, we see in Acts 13, the sending of Paul and Barnabas by the church in Antioch. And in Romans 15, Paul asking for help from the Roman church as he endeavored to go on his final missionary journey to Spain. And then I think one that's overlooked, and I'm going to touch on it again just to round it out. We have the example of Timothy and his mother and grandmother that poured into Timothy from childhood teaching him the scriptures. Oh, the impact of godly parents, of godly families, of godly grandparents, of godly aunts and uncles. Man, if I were here today and I had a son or a daughter, I'd take them to that bookstore next day and I would, 
I'd buy them books with the contingency. We'll, we'll read it together, but we're going to read these things to get missionary biographies into their DNA for good parents who raise their sons and daughters as temporary stewardships. We're raising them to be goers. We're raising them with the idea that this is not some far-flung thing that those other people do. We do this too, and we pray about this on a regular basis. And someday, if we have to drive you to LAX and we have to drop you off and we see you off, we'll have tears in our eyes, but we'll be proud of you. We'll be proud of you. Families that raise up goers. I'm encouraged, again, at Paul Schleyline's little biography of John Payton. Now his parents encouraged him when he finally made the decision that he was going to go. Remember, this was no small decision. As Peyton gets ready to head for the New Hebrides, there had already been missionaries from Scotland who had left and who had died. They'd eaten them on the shores. So most people are thinking he's going to a sure death. And he tells his parents... I've made the decision. I'm going to the New Hebrides. And this is how they responded. We feared to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. But when you, had, but when you were given to us, we laid you upon the altar, our firstborn, to be consecrated. If God saw fit as a missionary of the cross... And it's been our constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our hearts that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world. These were his parents. He's heading off to near sure death. Oh, for parents. Oh, for churches. Oh, for seminaries that provide the guardrails. We're sending them out. We're hoping they don't end up at a church that has 7,000 people. We're hoping that they end up in some obscure place and we'll only know the glory of it when we reach heaven someday. We'll only know the fruit of it. There'll be no records written about them. No movies will be made. But the God of heaven and earth will know. We pray for families like that. Oh, for parents that raise their children in such a manner. Schleyline would comment in his book, everyone loves to pray for sons and daughters that go to the mission field as long as it's someone else's sons and daughters. May God's people be pleased to raise their sons and daughters in such a way that the heavens are honored and the ends of the earth are reached with the gospel of our God's grace. So to summarize, if men and women who reside at the ends of the earth are to believe upon the Lord, it will not be without intentionality. There has to be some intentionality. That's the bane of missions today. Missions has become Baskin Robbins. Anything goes. Everything's missions. Just do it with a stranger outside of the house and it's missions. There has to be some intentionality if we are to reach the ends of the earth. It will not happen just by normal operations. They must know their Bible. They must be convinced of the need to be a clear communicator. They must preach powerfully and powerfully by the Spirit of our God. And they must go and they must be sent if we are to see the ends of the earth reached. We're going to sing later on today the hymn by Isaac Watts. That's how sweet and awful is the place. And in there there's this one middle stanza and the third says, Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come, 
send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Friends, the saving will be done by our God. Our God will not be limited by fallible, Adam-infested human beings, but he has chosen in his mercy and his grace to use us. May we raise up men and women from our churches, from our families, from our seminaries that have these values so that we can reach those last places that are still in darkness. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We could speak for hours. We could sing for days of the grace. It's unfathomable that you would show us such kindness when we were bent, when we were in our darkness. You loved us and you sent your Son. This sweet truth that is still unknown to entire groups of people, entire languages. Father, you will gather your sheep. You will have yours that will come. But Lord, you have called us to be faithful. May we be faithful ambassadors, faithful heralds here and around the world. May we raise up our sons and daughters. May we see our church members sent out. May we raise up those students from our institutions who have a burning desire to reach the nations and we equip them in such a manner. Father, thank you for all those that are gathered here. Thank you for your grace to us in allowing us to have this event. Thank you for the good weather. Thank you for so many things that we will not know until we reach glory. May we be faithfully about your work until that day comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.